past year, we've all had to reimagine our lives, searching for new sources of inspiration and new ways to connect. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. I'm Yana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel, and this is Chanel Connects. Bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and fashion in conversation from their homes and studios. I'm in the north of Scotland. I'm in my spare room. It's a very quiet area. Horrific shade of yellow. Still in New York City. Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what happens next. And now we get to listen in. In this episode, Seeing the Unseen. Artist Arthur Japa connects with painter and winner of the 2020 Rome Prize, Jennifer Packer. The conversation was led by Hansel Rickobrist, curator and artistic director of the Serpentine Galleries in London. Could you tell where my head was at when you found me? Me and you went to hell and back just to find peace. Thank you, AJ and Jenny, for so much. Because we are, of course, uh, in lockdown in London, and uh, I don't know about you, about New York and LA, if there is a lockdown, I wanted to ask you where you are. I'm in my, uh, I guess, uh, studio, I guess, former studio, actually. Um, I had a space in uh, West Adams, just kind of near the underground museum here in L.A. But in the course of uh, the last, I guess it's the last couple of weeks, I've sort of moved three or four doors down on the same block to a a space that's a bit larger and cheaper. I guess that's the COVID thing. (laughs) And cheaper. Uh, So, But they're doing some construction there now, so as a consequence, I'm sort of back here um, in the front of my sort of initial space. So here in L.A. and West Adams in sort of a previous, but I guess still extended studio. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Harlem at home. Um, chilling. <laughs> chilling. It's still early for me. <laughs> if it's early for you, it's very early for me. <laughs> you prefer Arthur or? AJ. AJ, okay. You can call me Arthur if you want. I, there's a few people no. who, who hold out for Arthur, but pretty much it. Like, I always say AJ. Yeah, yeah, most I can hear an AJ. old, old black man saying Arthur. Yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> if we can talk a little bit about this year, because it's been a very unexpected year in a sense, and I'm kind of wondering at the start of 2020 what you think you'll be doing right now and what you're actually doing right now. You want to go first, Jennifer? <laughs> <laughs> um, what I thought I'd be doing. I thought I would be having an espresso <laughs> in Piazza del Popolo right now, you know. Um, I'm supposed to be at the American Academy in Rome. Oh. So that's sort of been postponed. So I was like, all right, the Serpentine show would be up. The Mocha show would be up. And then I would just be in Rome thinking about what matters to me outside of commercial or public expectation. But I'm still in it. Yeah. <laughs> and Jennifer, you're working on a on a new painting, right? Which is uh, still in progress for the show in London. No, that already went. It went now. So can you yes. tell us about that? Oh man. Hmm. I've been thinking about like the different ways that you can like approach talking about work and whether it's like social, political, or historical or whatever. The list I think it goes on and on. But I like the idea of a painting as a monument 
And um, I think that painting sort of sits in this place of like, like just thinking about sorrowfulness and mourning <laughs> and like if objects that we make or art that we make can house those things if we can like expel them. I've been thinking a lot about Breonna Taylor and just like this overwhelming sense of impending doom <laughs> for many black folks um, that like no image can, can necessarily touch. And so just trying to like sort out my sense of disorientation in it all, like and the contradictions that exist as someone thinking about painting, wanting to be in my pleasure in painting and also like thinking about trauma and like trying not to turn away from it. Thank you. And, and AJ, what about you? What are you doing right now? And at the start of 2020, what did you think you'd be doing right now? I, I know one thing I started off uh, at the end of the year saying, I'm going to travel two thirds less. You know, that was sort of my pronouncement to everybody. And I feel like I, since the Serpentine show, I've been like on a dead run for the last four years, essentially living out of my suitcase, which I think is pretty common, you know, for artists. But then, you know, having said all of that, I started off this year with this crazy dash. You know, I was like Italy, like, you know, to, New to London, to Paris. It was like all in the course of five or six days. And I was just like, oh, shit, this is definitely not what I had in mind. And then COVID hit. So, <laughs> so I kind of, I had a couple of friends saying, like, I conjured the whole thing, you know. So <laughs> a lot of things that Jennifer was saying are, you know, precisely the kinds of questions that I'm thinking about, like what are the terms of making art and what are the goals and ambitions for that thing, you know? Like, as Jennifer was saying, like the whole question of mourning, which I could just put under the rubric of the whole question of the blues, you know, is a long-standing preoccupation for um, Black Americans. I'm not quite sure... I mean, Jennifer and I, we've never spoken before. I've just, you know, been, been a, a big admirer of the work from the beginning. So I'm not sure whether this is true for Jennifer. Obviously, she'll be able to speak to it. But, you know, I'm always very preoccupied with myself as a Black being. I don't even mean, like, so much as a Black artist, but as a, a Black being. And to what degree that frames or inflects how I approach what I do. Just on a purely kind of existential or emotional level, what is their relationship to that, that morning? How do those things overlap and diverge? Mm, yeah. But isn't, I feel like trauma is the thing that we don't have control over. Like we are, we're sort of, it's like being in a whirlwind and you're being carried away and you can't choose which way the wind blows. But I feel like the morning is, is like sometimes conscious, like hopefully conscious, but sometimes like an unconscious processing that we, can choose to have autonomy over to a certain extent, but yeah. the trauma is like, it's like the, the sweeping wave or something. Jennifer, you say that your inclination to paint from life is a very political one, that uh, you say we belong here, we deserve to be seen and acknowledged in real time. We deserve to be heard and to be imaged with shameless generosity and accuracy. So I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit why you are drawn to, to portraits and what actually makes an effective portrait? I mean, the question, like, for me is, it's not, like, about the elevation of portraiture. Like, that first question about is about observation, right? Or that, that statement is about, like, bearing witness to something, which means that you first see something and that you acknowledge it. 
and you take a position of truth, maybe, and you try to translate that. And sometimes people succeed or fail at that. I don't know about like the success of a portrait. Like I was thinking about what is or is not evidence. And painting is a kind of evidence of... <laughs> if you if you see a massive painting like a Rubens, you're like, this painting is evidence of like the success of the transatlantic slave trade. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it may also be evidence of people posing for that image. But for me, it's evidence of like a mass riches, like within that trade or the scramble for Africa, what, you know, like any number of approaches. I also move through... Like, I feel like I graduate through works that I've liked or disliked from, like, one side or the other. Like, I approach a work that I dislike one year and three years later, really I can appreciate, or ten years later, really appreciate. I don't know, success is very complicated like that, and the sort of, like, inability to anticipate entirely, like, how your needs will change is something that I think about all the time in the studio. I mean, I think a lot about people seeing the work, and, like, I, I was thinking about how People talk about the work as beautiful or, and how sorrowful I've felt making like so much of it, you know, like that sort of like that wound will never, that will never be healed. And in spite of that, like I, I try to produce something that feels authentic, that is authentic to me um, and that can be generative and generous. I don't know. It's, it's complicated. I think that somebody asked me like, what's an artist's job? It's like, you need to be looking regardless of the benefits that you reap from that looking. Like I think about what's his name? Ramsey Ortega. It's like who filmed Eric Garner. It's like, I was like following over the past three years. Like it's like you did a great service and you have been punished for it. You are punished for bearing witness. Mm -hmm. When you approach the beginning of creating one of these things that we term a painting, like it's not an empty space that you're entering into as a woman, as a Black person, you know what I mean? It's not like an arena that's just a neutral arena. And the complexity of what it means to be in a space that in some ways, in many ways, structurally speaking, you're not supposed to be in on one hand, but at the same time, you still have to contend with all the shit that anybody else who takes a brush and dips it in some pigment and puts it on the canvas has to contend with <laughs> is the incredible weight of everything that's been done. I'm wondering how that plays into, you know, how you approach your work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I often say in a really, like, <laughs> cheeky way that I think some of the white and white-identified folks I know who had been making paintings for a long time got tired of their own history and abandoned painting. And they didn't spend enough time, like, parsing through issues you know, around the language of mastery, which I wanted to talk about all the time. And it drove people crazy because people can't distinguish between like mastery and privilege or mastery and whiteness, mastery and power, as opposed to like mastery as like, like a subjective location from which an individual can make work like that charged arena. And so I always wanted to, I always wanted to talk about that. I mean, I'm not paralyzed by the history of things that weren't left for me. I'm like, I could take it or leave it. Like, I'm like, remix. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Totally. I'm, um, I'm, I'm moved by it. And I, you know, I talk about Caravaggio or something. Like, I don't think, I don't think he would be 
super happy to meet me, you know, or like, I don't, you know what I mean? But like, he left some really great works for, you know, someone who, when I was living in Rome, I was debilitated by depression. And I was like, he's crazy too. This is great. But if this was like the 16th century or something, he wouldn't have let me in the studio. Right. And I never would have like had that connection. There are like ways in which we can connect with people who, whose works sometimes overlap with our interests. Like all, the, the conversation, you know, like when you talked about blackness and, and suffering and sorrow and misery, it's like there's so much there that I cannot turn away from. And I always felt was in the work. And because of that, I didn't feel like I had to explain anything. And so if people misread stuff, if they thought it was cute or stupid or silly or superficial or Sunday painting, I just leaned into it. I was like, that's fine. You, That's fine. Because, you know, it, it doesn't bother me any. Like the trauma is there. It's next week, last week, the week before, a month from now. Like all of those things are to me embedded in the work. And it's not my job to like, point out the nuances for everyone to to access the first time that i took note of uh, jennifer's work i remember just you know like seeing it and not knowing anything about who did it or anything i was just like even the whole impulse to figure out who had done it was part of like to me you know what i mean the metric of it succeeding like i was like oh who the fuck did this you know and it's the painting that i think is I always thought it was a policeman or something. I couldn't quite tell. You know the one I'm talking about? This one? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. That is the one. That When I saw that thing, I was like, whoa, what is this? Is that a policeman? I mean, I think it's like a, it's, it's like a question in the painting itself. Like, I made, two, I made two versions of that painting. Okay. One in which, like, that person mimicked an officer. I was, oh, okay. like, thinking about the distinction between an officer and a security guard. Oh, yeah. At a certain okay. point. Yeah, like yeah, what yeah. like the arming and the the sort mm-hmm. of like questions mm-hmm. of power. Mm-hmm. But people usually just refer to it as a painting of a police officer. And okay. I do not, yeah, never, so cor- not I never correct them. I <laughs> yeah. never correct them. I mean I think that that painting, like um an exercise of tenderness, the the blue painting, was one where people started to rethink what the rest of the work might be. It really contextualized the practice so intensely that it's almost like and then say her name. It's like people couldn't, I I can't remember a time when people were really talking about blackness in relationship to my work necessarily in a way that was like tethered to loss or sorrow. And I think mostly like people quote me when they talk about my work too, like things that I've said about, about those subjects. But yeah, I mean, I'm interested in the, in, in like how we process a feeling of alienation and we can interrogate that nonetheless. I'm interested in like, making works that that feel less successful i'll say but are ever so important to to the works that came before and the works that'll come after you know it's funny i think maybe it's an age thing it's a you know it's a fatigue thing it's like there are times and there have been times in my life where I didn't want to talk about the stuff at all. I was just like tired of talking about it mm-hmm. or not even like kind of tired of thinking about it. And in addition to that, tired, but tired from what? Like part of what I think, you know, I think everybody can understand is nobody wants to be boxed, boxed in. Nobody wants the terms in which their work is uh, apprehended or appreciated or not liked to be so narrow and be so, you know, overdetermined in a way. I mean, I think everybody is 
looking for a non-contaminated reading of what they do. But I guess I came to a certain conclusion at some point where I felt like these arguments about whether I'm an artist or a Black artist, all those kinds of arguments, but they were determining aspects of the context in which we find ourselves. You know, it's like no escaping that. And the conversation about it is a thing unto itself, like that has a relationship to what you make, but, you know, it's a thing unto itself that you could be interested in talking about or not interested in talking about, or interested in talking about at a certain moment and not at other moment. Like, I'm very, for all of my yapping, because I'm constantly yapping about these things, I don't do a whole lot of talking about my actual work. Like, if you stood me in front of any of my works and said, well, what is this about? I immediately will freeze up because I don't feel like I know what they're about, particularly when they're functioning at what I would term their best. I don't know what they're about. I mean, the reason that I feel like they're working when they're really working is because they absolutely supersede my ability to reduce them to language. You know what I mean? They supersede my ability to say what it's about. Mary Witness has a cost. And I think it could seem sort of arbitrary in the in the scheme of painting. I think it, in AJ's work, it's like clearer to me. Like when I see that Walter Scott scene, I'm like, that person is hiding behind a tree. Like they're tucked away. You know what I mean? It's an insane compositional element that very few painters would incorporate into a work because it's symmetrical, like it's overly balanced. There's like this weird horizontal that turns it into a cross. And I've been thinking about how to incorporate that to a painting for like, the last two years um, without being overt about it. I remember the first time, this was at when uh, Love is a Message uh, was up at Gavin's. And the first time I did it, like a full on public talk in the face of it. And I had this laser pointer that Hans had given me. So I ended up kind of spontaneously going through Love is the Message shot by shot in front of the audience. I mean, it's, you know, short enough that you can kind of make, make it through it. And, uh, I know like a lot of people were troubled when I talked about the whole Walter Scott thing and what was beautiful about it. You know what I mean? Like compositionally, what was strange and uh, ineffable about it, you know, at the same time that it was such a, you know, horrible image of a black person being murdered, you know, but you're right. Like I've, I've, I've had many conversations with people in the sort of um, aftermath of uh, the George Floyd murder like asked me about my relationship to showing black death or, you know, or black suffering or something like this. I think suffering and death are two different things, but I mean, suffering is something you experience. Death is something to a certain degree, societally we experience, you know, we experience other people dying, other people being gone. But when you suffer, that's the person. I mean, you can experience people suffering as well, but I think it's more located in the subject position of the person the thing is happening to. But like for me, I think I've tried to speak to the fact that there's never one way of understanding or looking at a thing. And one of my metrics of a thing that I think that succeeds or a thing that I like or I'm attracted to or I think I think favorably of is a thing that does more than one thing. It's got to do multiple things in a complicated and, and, and coherent. And my sense of beauty is not tied to, quote unquote, what the thing looks like, but it's tied to what the thing is doing is doing what it's doing in relationship to some givens about the world that we may share or not share. 
as Jennifer was saying, the whole bearing of witness is a big part of it. But the question then becomes, how do you inscribe what you witness in the thing? And how effectively do you do that? And to what ends do you do that? I'm always seeking, a, I think it's a kind of conceptual equilibrium. It's like, okay, you're addressing the beauty of the thing, so I want to address these other aspects of the things. Because the beauty of the thing is getting attended to on a certain level. So, like, I will get into things that I think sometimes they go into a kind of what a lot of people would consider a space of decadence, maybe a space of, like, a kind of perversion, let's say, for example, if I start talking about the aesthetic values of a shot of Walter Scott being murdered, you know what I mean? People would think like, wow, that's really, really problematic. But there's something to be said for what I might term like the joys of being a grave digger. Like we always think of grave diggers as a person who did that job because nobody else wanted to do that job. You know what I mean? Like who who would choose to be a grave digger? But there's some people for whom that's a call. Yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I started reading this book, um, The Sovereignty of Quiet by Kevin Kawashi. Yeah. I don't yep. know if I'm saying his name right, one, but yeah. just him talking about the difference between quiet and silence, that like silence is this, the opportunity to express yourself, but like refusing to do so or, or, or withholding. I'm very interested in the distinction between that and this is the way that I thought about it, that it's like you're sort of processing a state without direct external stimuli, which maybe goes back to the idea of like trauma and mourning. Like I've been thinking a lot about what it means to, to recover mm. publicly and privately, like as an individual and within a practice, like th- that first question Hans Ulrich asks is like, what did I hope to be doing? It's like recovering, <laughs> like, and so I'm like trying to think about like, of course, the cost of bearing witness, the silence, the quietude, and the recovery is like, is everything. But it's interesting that we're talking here in a recorded conversation about silence, because I always remember I went to interview the philosopher Gadamer. He was almost 100 years old and I visited him in Germany. He was alone in a big house and we started the conversation. I you know, put the camera on the table, we started to film. I had an audio recorder as well. And uh, all of a sudden, he fell asleep. It was very strange because I just couldn't wake him up. And I also, of course, didn't want to really wake him up because he needed to rest. But then luckily, the telephone rang. It was the time of landlines. It was around 99. So he picked up the landline, super loud landline, and said, Gadamer. I cannot talk to you. I'm in an interview. Uh, And he hanged down, you know, the landline, the phone. uh, And he looked at me and he looked at the camera and he said, you will have a greatest difficulty to transcribe my silence. (laughs) That that just brings to mind, like, it brought to mind the last time I saw Audre Lorde because I was very fortunate Mm -hmm. to work on the documentary sort of profile of Audre Lorde that Michelle Parkinson and Ada Gay Griffin directed. But the last image I remember of her is we were in St. Croix. We had been shooting her for a few months. And um, we were shooting her when she would have her doctor's visits in New York, you know, with her oncologist. But we were down in St. Croix where she lived with her partner. And uh, she had a big sort of easy chair that they had outside. You know, they had set it out in the yard and it had blankets on it. And, you know, it was her comfort, her comfort, her comfort chair. 
we've been shooting her for maybe like four or five days and we were scheduled to shoot her back in New York, I think the following week when she was going to visit an oncologist again. And, uh, and I went to say goodbye to her. And when I got there, she was asleep. And of course, I was like, I remember just staring at her. But, you know, of course, I wasn't going to wake Audrey Lord up, you know, period. <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll sit next week. There's no problem. And of course, she, she died, you know, a few days after that. And it's like, for me, it's something about as powerful a kind of presence as she was and as articulate as she was. And she also had that same quality. She would doze off and we would say action and we'd be like, boom, like she had never been asleep, you know, but just to see (laughs) her, you know, in that state of just, she was calm. She seemed very calm to me. I wanted to ask you both the question about the unrealized project, because we know a lot about architects' unrealized projects because they always publish them, but we know very little about artists' unrealized projects. And there's, of course, many reasons why a project is unrealized. It can be too big to be realized, too small to be realized, can also eventually be forgotten in a locker. It can be a project which is censored in terms of censorship. It can also be a project we simply haven't dared to do. So there are many reasons why a project which be unrealized. And I wanted to ask you towards the end of this conversation to tell us about one of your so far unrealized projects. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to get rich. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, um, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. No, um, <laughs> but I'm, I've been wanting to start this artist residency for like BIPOC with an emphasis on the B artist that's like interdisciplinary intergenerational which i've wanted to do autonomously which requires finances (laughs) that um also like require me to part with more of the work i have a very fraught relationship with parting with works like you know what i mean I'm, i'm surrounded by a handful of things and i know that the vision would be realized more quickly if i just chilled on that but part of the, the structure of the residency would be such that we could imagine a world in which everything that we make does not have to leave us. That like there's cultural capital like in the labor and in the products and in the conversations and we could house them somewhere. <laughs> so I think that's the primary one. Yes, like, I mean, I've also like wanted to do a lot of writing, which I can't seem to fit into my schedule at all. But I'm thinking a lot about young Black contemporary artists thinking about legacy and like I was watching this the conversation between James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni this morning and just seeing this like distinction between like their approaches generationally but also like as like gendered black people and I'm interested in building like a library of conversations um I'm really interested in oral history so I'm doing a project with like an organization in in Sarasota, Florida, that's centered around like black life and the black community there. But I mean, I think, I think those are the primary kind of the like primary motivators outside of like the practice as it sits right now. AJ, can you tell us about your so far unrealized project? I, I think for me, because of my particular kind of trajectory, I've been sort of in a sense remining or um, excavating whole bodies of ideas, things that I sort of thought about, but when I didn't have a, you know, I wasn't, I, for whatever reason, I wasn't able to produce work. 
I guess what I'm trying to do, and I don't know if this is a specific work, but I'm trying to describe things which maybe more than a handful of people, Black folks would agree, yeah, that's true. That's kind of true. And then try to figure out what the implication that is in terms of particular work. Like, for example, because ontologically speaking, Black people like came into being like on slave ships, let's say. There's a way you can understand that, on slave ships, that we would chain together. Like, even though that was a horrifying experience, on one hand, it one of the side effects of it is a kind of non-hierarchical relation. You know, it flattened things. It flattened certain kinds of things because if you find yourself, as, you know, Fredo Sadia might say, in the hold, you know what I mean? Whether you were African mm-hmm. prince or queen or whatever you are, an outlaw, a criminal, an anarchist, it wouldn't matter. Everybody got leveled. And that leveling is, on one hand, one of the most, you know, dehumanizing aspects of the experience. But, you know, it's like the upside of underdevelopment. It's like the flip side of that is it, it has given us a very particular kind of relationship to proximity and relationship and intimacy and uh, differentiation in the space of, you know, a crab, a barrel, you know, that you've been forced into. Like it's given us some very particular relationships to those things that are, I think, atypical of human beings and human communities in general. So for me, it's like, how do I take something as simple or as straightforward as that insight? We have a very particular relationship to hierarchy because we were chained in the bottom of boats together. How do you do something with that? So my unrealized project, a yet to be realized project, is bound up with like what to make of those kinds of observations or uh, hypotheses. Thank you so much. And actually, my unrealized project is to do a big exhibition of all the 4,000 unrealized projects I've archived asking this question since Alighiero Boetti, you know, in 1989 gave me that task. And the irony is that whenever we get close to realize this exhibition, it somehow falls through. So the exhibition of unrealized projects remains an unrealized kind of project. Knowing that many young artists are listening to our podcast, what would be your advice to a young artist? My answer is always the same thing. Really pursue your bliss. Like at the end of the day, You have to identify your bliss. You have to pursue it. You can't let anybody deter you from it. There's no guarantee of success or failure, but success or failure, that's kind of illusionary anyway. But you got to figure out what it is you were put here to do that nobody else can do because nobody else is really quite interested in doing it the way that you want to do. And just to be, try to increasingly practice not seeing things in terms of good or bad. It's, you know, like I, I say often, it's like I'm trying to make work like, you know, Mount Fuji. You know, it's just outside of the scope of being a good mountain or a bad mountain. It's just, it kind of just is. It's like, so that's what I would say. Really pursue your bliss. Pursue like what's singular in terms of your preoccupations. Yeah, no doubt. I think understanding the distinction between works that artists feel for and the commodities that collectors and curators respond to are different. I think the the idea of like 
following your bliss is like super complex. And I want to like posit some criticality around that. It's like everyone doesn't have the same commitment to your trajectory or your work. And I think it's hard when you're in the whirlwind to describe what it is you're aiming for, like privately in the work and publicly. And I think people should be honest with themselves about like what they're yearning for and how those sort of distinct and usually like divergent impulses affect the practice overall. Uh, I think Adrian Piper speaks really well in um, in in the the book that was modeled after the Rilke um, Letters to Young Poet, which is Letters to a Young Artist. She sort of talks about the distinct approaches to success, like within the quote art world versus um, within one's independent, private, meditative studio practice. Beautiful. Thank you so much. It was so amazing. I'm so, so grateful. We have to talk again, Jennifer, okay? For sure, for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Chanel Connects. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they're released.